kids can be dismissed to their children's service, and they'll come back as soon as the uh, service is over. The rest of us can tune in our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Kind of an emotional person, and so I'm trying. I don't, I'm going to keep these words brief because I want to preach this sermon, and uh, I don't want to be crying the whole time. And then it'll make its way on social media, and you'll make fun of me. All those things I want to avoid. Um, I saw a quote this week, and I can't remember the exact wording of it, but they, it said something to the effect of, "Those that move find they have family all over the world," and. That's been so true of us here at this church. Um, I'm not going to look at you because I'll cry a lot worse than I'm already starting to. Coming here, we came here with a lot of pain, um, a lot of uh, hurting out of the last ministry we were in that ended really abruptly in a, in a hard way. And I've told the story to you before, uh, for most of you who, who were here for that. Um, this has been such a great place for us to heal and to be loved on, and this church has been so great to us. I had a chance this week to talk to my kids, at least many of them, and just reflect on what God had done and has done in our lives and um, the good things and some of the hard things over the last three and a half years that we've been here. And um, it was a, a real joy to my soul that most of the stories that they shared about the good memories have to do with this church. Um, from my kids talking about playing basketball at Harrisburg Christian, which was a highlight of, of their time here, and uh, the friends that they made through that, which is connected because of this church and involvement in youth group and the youth group activities they were involved with, and for Tara and I being involved with the elder team and our small group, which is been like family to us. We're so grateful. And I'm going to stop, but I need you to know how much we love you. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to preach, and I'll stop crying. You're good, Lord, and you give good gifts. But you also bring just enough pain to remind us that this is not our home. And that some things are eternal. And Lord, I believe you're sending us out so that your kingdom will be larger. And that when we celebrate around the throne of heaven with these dear friends and family, that they'll even be a bigger group because of the work of this church. And so, Lord, I thank you for the ministry that this church has had in our lives, which I believe has allowed us to be sent out and to continue to minister. I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy. You're a good and gentle king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
think I'm okay. Okay, Luke 19. It's my last sermon. Christmas Eve was short for those of you who are here. Jason and Benjamin, not you. I'll get one last shot, right? So this one's going to be longer, so just be ready. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he grew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the moment in the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, Already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent... The very stones would cry out. Introductions matter. In the next 30 seconds, you will probably decide whether to shut off your phone and tune into the rest of the sermon or tune out and go back to scrolling Instagram or Facebook or whatever your generation is doing these days. And I'm not judging anyone for that. I'm just pointing out a human reality. What happens at the beginning of an event gives us a glimpse into the whole. In 1993, a study was done by Nalini Ambadi and Robert Rosenthal, and they found out that exactly this is true, that in a very short amount of time, we can make an assessment of a situation, and usually it's relatively accurate. What they did is they took a group of students, and they allowed them to get ten or three 10-second glimpses into a classroom setting. And they asked those students to make evaluations of those teachers over those three 10-second segments. 10 seconds, 30 seconds total, make a judgment of your professor. They recorded all their responses down, and then they compared it to those who had gone through the class, the whole entire class, and gave a review. And they found that with 85% agreement, the, accurate, the, the assessment after 10 seconds was the same as a whole semester. Introductions matter. In college, my friend Daniel and I ran for student body president. He ran as president and I ran as vice president. And maybe some of you kind of remember that time of life. And my unique little Bible college was probably weirder than most. I'm sure it was weirder than most. But still, we had this event. And as the campaign started, there was, we found at the end there was going to be a speech and kind of a presentation. And some of you are immediately are imagining Napoleon Dynamite, and that's kind of the way it was. And we knew going into it we were long shots. And we were running against kind of the big man on campus. He was cooler, and he had a lot more friends than we did. And we were really kind of the, you know, the Bible geeks. Uh, but we thought this would be fun. And, and then we got word of what he was doing. And for us, it was big. So the year was 1997, which some of you can remember. 
And at that time, like, video was a big deal, and people just didn't make their own videos. And so for someone to take a video and edit it and put it together in a way that was compelling was overwhelming to us, and we got word that he had made this amazing video. And we knew that we couldn't match that. And sure enough, as we went into this presentation, he gave his speech, and there was big lifts, and people were in the air, and there was explosions on the screen, and we were overwhelmed, and we knew we had to do something radical, and so we did the complete opposite. When he zigged, we zagged. And so what I did uh, was I introduced him with a poem that I wrote. You can kind of see where this is going. (laughs) And then uh, the song Hallelujah Chorus started playing, and it quickly transitioned into some kind of a bluegrassy, upbeat, hick song, and he rode in on a bicycle with a, with a basket on the front. Let's just say that it didn't quite make the impression we were thinking it would make. We did not win. And uh, let me just say that my future wife, Tara, didn't even vote for us. Introductions matter, right? On Christmas Eve, we talked about the introduction that was made of the birth of Jesus Christ, the heralding of that king, and how the the heralding of that king was appropriate to the kind of king that Jesus was going to be. That the heavens opened and angels sang, and it was awe-inspiring glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace Toward men with whom he is pleased. It's hard for me to remember the non-King James Version. That's, I think, close enough. This said something about the kind of king. The government would be on his shoulder, and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And now at the end of the story, we're seeing a similar kind of entrance. His entrance into Jerusalem is a statement, like his birth. It is the beginning of the end. And every movement that we're going to see from this point on, not that other movements weren't important, but these are packed with significance. Jesus' whole life and ministry is leading up to this last week. For 33 years, he had lived faithfully. He had fulfilled all righteousness. He had kept every portion of God's law where we could not keep it. And then for the past three years, he had been preaching the gospel and declaring through preaching and his miracles, the breaking in of God's kingdom. But now something was different. Luke 9 kind of talks about this difference. It just has these brief words in verse 51. That when the days drew near for him to be taken up, coming close to this moment, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There was a point in his ministry where his gaze and his attention and his mind were going to what the Father had sent him to do. His face was set. Nothing could dissuade him. There was even a point when Herod was trying to kill him. and They left the place because a prophet should not be killed outside of Jerusalem is what he said. This final movement toward Jerusalem would mark the beginning of Christ last week on earth. And his going up to Jerusalem would be his going up to the cross. And he knew it. In his words and actions, he was fulfilling the scripture and demonstrating to the people one more time what kind of king he was. So it begs the question, what kind of king is he? 
It says, when he drew up near to Bethphage and to Bethany, to the mountain that is called Olivet, he just sent his disciples saying, go into the village. And there we see him seize a colt or have his followers grab a colt and he rides it. The first thing we notice here is that Jesus knows the exact details of what's to come. He knows the details of where the colt will be. He knows the response of the owners. We'll talk more about the response of the owners later. But Jesus sends his disciples ahead, and it all happens just as he said when they told them, the Lord has need of it. I don't want to overstate the case here because we can be prone, or at least I can be prone to read too much into the text. But I I think there is some significance to the villages that Luke mentions here. Bethany stands out to us as the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the scene of Jesus' most important miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And it was there that Jesus raised Lazarus, and it was also there that Jesus was anointed with oil in Luke 7.36. Bethphage is not mentioned in the Bible except in this story. It is an insignificant little village with an ironic name. Because Bethphage means the town of unripe figs. And it reminds us of a parable that Jesus told in Luke 13, which also bears a similarity to what Jesus is about to experience in Jerusalem. In Luke 13, 6, it says, And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted by his vineyard, and when he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. I wonder if the significance of this town is that it's saying something about the unripeness of the people. They should have been bearing fruit, but instead their hearts are hard toward God. And Jesus' coming to them is this last opportunity for repentance. This is the appointed day of salvation. Now is the moment. God has been merciful and gracious. And now they were to turn and believe in Jesus as their Savior. And for those of you who have not yet put your faith in Christ, I want to say the same thing to you. Now is the moment of salvation. We see the mercy and the forbearance of God, and he's pleading with people to come and put their faith in Christ. Don't delay. Now is the moment. Do not presume on the mercy and grace of your Savior. But there's something else that's odd here, besides the names of these towns. Jesus seeks out and rides a colt. Now, I'm not into equestrian, but I did grow up in Wisconsin, and we lived in Michigan for a long time, and even here in central PA, we should know a lot about agriculture and horses and cows and those kinds of things. So if you know anything about horses or donkeys, you know that you don't ride a colt typically, right? Why? Because they're young. They're not broken in. You ride on the mature horse that's broken in and trained for battle. And certainly kings would not ride on a colt. They're unpredictable and they're weak. They're not for battle. The king chooses a steed and usually the best steed and a steed that is prepared for battle. And a good steed is like another weapon. It can actually be something that leads into attack and not just something that would be a liability. A king should be riding on a powerful war horse. But this king chooses for himself the colt of a donkey, one that is still with his mother. 
And he uses this for his triumphant entry. And we look at this and go like, that's kind of weird. And it's meant to be weird. Those odd things draw our attention to why is he doing that? And I hope you learn to do that as you read scripture. When something seems out of place, stop. Because it's there for a reason. These authors moved by the Holy Spirit were writing in very unique ways to draw our attention to those oddities. To draw our attention and say, why is that there? The reason he chooses a cult is because he's fulfillment of the ancient prophecy. 500 years before Christ, in the book of Zechariah, it was said this of the coming Messiah. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, because behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war host from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And it also reminds us of the promise even earlier made to Judah, the ancestor of Jesus, in Genesis chapter 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is the king who is coming, not in war at this point, but in peace. Just as it was foretold by the angels at his birth, Christ is offering peace to a world that is at war with God. Emmanuel has come. God is with us. He has condescended to our lowly state. He has taken off his sword and dismounted from his war horse. He comes in peace and he offers peace. Just like we read on Christmas Eve, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus here is coming into Jerusalem on a colt and offering himself as the Prince of Peace. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Will we accept him? That leads us to the second question. What kind of king is Jesus? But then what kind of followers are we? 
First of all, we see here that the disciples of Jesus gladly obey. The past two Sundays, Jason and Benjamin have showed us from Luke what true disciples of Jesus look like. And here again, we see a picture of how disciples of Jesus should respond to their king. Imagine you're sitting on your couch on a Sunday afternoon watching the game. And suddenly there's a knock at your door. You go to the door and there you find a man that you've never met who looks you in the face and says to you, I need to take your car. The Lord needs it. How would you respond? Think about that. Very good. Someone's honest. Sure, Lord, take my car. It wasn't even Jesus knocking on their door. It was these disciples coming and said, I need to take your colt. Why? The Lord needs it. Sure. There may be no more telling way to reveal our hearts toward the king than when the king asks asks us to give him our stuff. I'm going to take a little, little, I don't know what the right word is. Yeah, there you go. Discursus. You knew what I was thinking, English teacher. Little discursus. But from the time I was a little child, my parents taught my brother and I to tithe. I didn't even understand the significance of it. I knew that when a dollar came out, I really only had 90 cents. Tithing is an ancient biblical tradition that goes all the way back to the time of Abraham, in which 10% of all that one received was given back to God. And even as a little child, putting a dime in that offering for every dollar I received, it taught me that all of what I had, even the 90%, was God's. God doesn't need the 10% or your 1% or whatever you put in the offering plate this week or forever. He doesn't need any of it. He says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But what that does, that exchange does, it says to me something about what I have. That it's all God's. I know there's a debate in theological circles about whether tithing is binding on New Testament Christians or whether we're just to give generously, and I'm not going to get into all of that. But the question I want us to ponder is this. Do we show that Christ is the king with our possessions? Do we show that Christ is the king with our children? Do we show that Christ is the king with our service? If Jesus called you to sell your house and move away from mom and dad and come with us, the Dunfords, to California which I hope he does. Some of you. Or to go overseas to India, would you do it? If God told you to let your child go and let them serve God in the Middle East where they may die, would you open your hands and send them gladly? Would you pray for God to do that? If God called you to stop stealing from him and to start giving financially, generously, would you reorganize your finances and cut some things out of your budget in order to do that? Here is this unknown person in scripture who, when the king said, I need it, said, there you go. May our works match our words. The disciples of Jesus gladly obey. And then secondly, the disciples of Jesus loudly praised. It says in verse 36, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Mount of Olives is a significant place. It's also mentioned in Zechariah as the place where the Messiah would come and put down his feet. That could be another sermon for another time. But it's also a really interesting place. For over 3,000 years, the Mount of Olives has been a graveyard. And if you go to the Mount of Olives today, as far as you can see up the hill, you see these sarcophaguses lining the roads. And people come and put their little stones on top to remember those who have died. And for 3,000 years, people have been buried on the Mount of Olives. And here Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, back up toward the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by the graves. And the people are surrounding him and they recognize that something is going on here. And the disciples know instinctively, they might not know all that Jesus was going to be, but they knew that this was unique and they knew that he was their king and they could not stop their mouths from praising his name. And they began grabbing everything they could that would signify the coming of a king and they threw it on the ground in front of him. They took off their cloaks because that's what they did in that time. You can see in the Old Testament when Jehu became king, they took off their clothes and threw it down before him because they don't want the the foot of the, the king's colt or the king's horse to touch the ground. Walk on my clothes instead. Weird to us, but to them it was significant. Putting down the palm fronds and praising the Lord. They praised him with their actions and they praised him with their words. And look at how it was described. Rejoice, they said. With a loud voice, they praised him. They were not shy about praising God. In fact, they made a scene. They made a scene that wasn't welcome. They made a scene that was counter-cultural. And a scene that could get them in a lot of trouble. But they made a scene. The disciples of Jesus may not have understood all that was going on. But what they did understood, they celebrated Sometimes you'll hear preachers contrast the crowd on Palm Sunday with the crowd on Good Friday as if the masses turned on Jesus. And to some degree that might be true, but that's not, I don't think, what Luke has in mind here. I think instead he's drawing a contrast between the true disciples, the true sons of Abraham, and the false disciples, the false sons of Abraham. The disciples are shouting and singing and quoting from a significant passage about the king coming into the temple in victory. It is a psalm that was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, a feast in the Old Testament that was to celebrate and look forward to the coming of Messiah and of God dwelling with man. They sang from Psalm 118. And the section they sang from was verses 26 and 27. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. And here we see the contrast between the true disciples and the false disciples. While some are praising him, there's others who are watching. And some of the Pharisees, it says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these stones were silent, the very stones would cry out. Do you see? This is huge. 
The praise of Christ is so important that all creation is moved to praise his name. So don't worry about your voice, whether it cracks or it's off key. I sit next to my grandmother growing up in church, and she had the worst voice in the world. It was like, like, like a cat being skinned. It was terrible. But she sang loud. And she loved to sing. And she loved to hear people sing because the Spirit of God was moving in her heart and bubbling with joy. Don't worry about your voice. I promise you, you sing better than a rock. So Jesus is saying, don't let the rocks do it. You do it. This is your prerogative. This is your blessing as a follower of Jesus. Sing. But there's more here. Jesus is saying that a true follower of God is not about what you call yourself or what about your parents were or about what your past looks like. A true follower of Christ is shown by his posture toward the king. Jesus says, the stones can sing. Earlier this week, Benjamin and I were talking about this passage, and I was wrestling with the significance of these stones crying out, and he pointed me back to Luke chapter 3, and I think this is significant. In Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Jesus, or John the Baptist was talking to the, some of these same religious leaders. And he calls them out and he said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Isn't that the truth of the gospel? Jesus went in and then he sends his disciples out. When the Jews reject him, his faithful remnant go out and preach the gospel to hard, stony hearts that are made tender by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God makes sons of Abraham from us. Us, non-Jews, the ones to whom the disciples went out and preached and their disciples went out and preached and their disciples went out and preached. So someone came and told you and I about the gospel of Jesus Christ and God raises up stones to be sons of Abraham. God makes sons of Abraham from us. We are the rocks that praise him. And the mission of Christ is to call the nations to take part in the family blessing that comes through Jesus. But there's more. This week started with Jesus entering as a new kind of king, but it would end on Saturday with Jesus laying in the grave, waiting for Sunday. In the background of this beautiful picture of Christ being praised as king, we know that there is something very dark looming. And this is where the use of Psalm 118 takes an unexpected turn. Because if we were to move out into the context of Psalm 118, we see that there's things in that psalm that maybe even the singers of that psalm on that day, on that Sunday, couldn't have envisioned. Verse 21 says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, 
give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of God. And then these words. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. What the disciples didn't know was that this king who was coming in on the colt was the Lamb of God who was coming to take away the sins of the world. And as he entered into Jerusalem, he wasn't just coming as a king to sit on a throne, but first he was coming as their sacrifice. And on Friday of that week, Jesus would be nailed to the cross and his blood would be shed and his life would be given as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so this morning, as we gather together as God's people, we raise our voices in praise, but we also raise our actions in praise. And we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember the sacrifice of our King, Jesus, who came humbly and came in peace to offer us salvation and came as the sacrifice, the festal sacrifice with cords, the king who was the lamb, the lion who was the lamb, who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have Benjamin come up to lead us in the Lord's table. And the music is going to come as well. And so while I'm praying, they're going to come and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together and remember and give our homage and our praise to the king who was slain so that we might be saved. Our Father, your gospel is so beautiful. You seek out men like Zacchaeus and tell him that you will come and dine in his home. And you restore him to full fellowship with you. Lord, you reward your servants and you are faithful and gracious and a good judge even when we are wicked. And Lord, you come and you humbled yourself and were obedient to the death on the cross so that we might be saved. And Lord, from that you make us a family who weren't a family. I thank you, Lord, for this family. I thank you, Lord, that it's only been possible because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so, Lord, as we celebrate our familiness, we celebrate that you have made us true sons of Abraham. We celebrate that Jesus Christ is our reigning king, and we celebrate the oneness that we have because of that in him this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.